The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. It was about four years ago, my wife and I enjoyed a nice dinner for an anniversary down in the Five Points area of Birmingham. and We were dressed nice and had a wonderful conversation, enjoying being with each other. And we left the restaurant, and there we saw him. There on the fountain in front of Highlands United Methodist Church, he was standing up on the edge. It was a street preacher. Now, you've seen the type when you've gone into a concert or a sporting event, and they're there proclaiming the gospel as best they understand it. And he had a big sign, and it said something about repenting, and I always find these things mesmerizing, and so I kind of slowed down for a moment. It was also somewhat of a movement of compassion because nobody else was listening to him, and I thought, well, I'll give him an audience just for a minute here. We're standing 20, 25 feet away. My wife's carrying her her box of leftovers, and um, I began to feel this little tug on my arm, and I said, hold on just a minute. And he notices that I'm listening, and he says, excuse me, sir, are you a believer? And look, I've... I'm a minister, but I've got my demons too, and I, I couldn't help but mess with the guy, and I just said, well, then what? You know, I knew what he was getting at. And he started to step down off of, the, off of the fountain to come my way to, I guess, convert me, and my wife just took over the whole situation. She yanked some arm and said, we already know Jesus. Thank you very much, and we just made <laughs> our way to the car. She was not about to let me engage that person. Um, <laughs> his strategy that night was very, very different than what I would choose to do if I were to have a conversation about faith. But the reality is, I remember seeing on his sign something about resurrection, something about eternal life. And for us who have gathered here this morning, there is no more central principle or claim or historic event than the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a fact. And in fact, I will tell you, if it's not true, if it's a hoax, if it was something people misinterpreted, if the disciples just decide to make Jesus a martyr and to canonize him in their own spirits and remember him fondly, then we should just go home right now and eat the Easter ham. And all the pretty pastels that you've put on are beside the point. All my years of seminary training, worthless. And this is not some rhetoric for me. This is actually scriptural. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless And your faith is worthless. Everything that we do as Christians hinges upon the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I'm aware this morning that in every group of people, even confessed Christians, and many of us are, there are really, if we're honest, there are varying levels levels of acceptance of this as a fact and levels of assurance of its truthfulness. And what I want to tell you this morning is that is okay. Based upon the Gospel of John, through four different episodes, we are given by the Gospel writer an example of how four different kinds of people encounter the resurrected Christ so that resurrection becomes something personally impactful for them. The Gospel of John recognizes that just like some of you entered this room through different doorways, but now you're all here, that Jesus needed to appear in different ways to different kinds of people. The story that Coleman read so well for us begins in the darkness of a Sunday morning where Mary Magdalene, we believe, at least in one gospel, by herself, who has the courage when the men, disciples, did not, to go and anoint the body of her Lord to revere Him, to honor Him. 
she gets there and this big stone has been rolled away and she runs back to the disciples and tells them the tomb is open and I think it's empty and something's up. Now the gospel says that the disciple that Jesus loved doesn't give him a name, but we believe it to be the writer of the gospel, John, and Peter get up and sprint to the tomb. Now, Peter's probably an older, middle-aged man, and John is younger at this time. And the scripture says that John outruns him. And John stops at the entrance of the tomb, and he looks in. And the word in the Greek for John looking in is blipe. Blipe, and it literally means to just see something, to observe something, to look at something. He noticed the tomb was empty. Now, Peter's right behind him. Peter is not stopping at the doorway. And he comes up and like hockey body checks Peter, John out of the way and bursts into the tomb. And I can see in my mind's eye, Peter there, he's huffing and puffing in his eyes. He's squinting because they're getting adjusted to the darkness in the tomb. And it says that he looks there and he sees the linens that Jesus had been wrapped up in. But it uses a different word. In English, it says look, but it's in the Greek, theorio. It means to gaze, to experience and to partake of something. It's where we get our word theater, to take in the theater, to encounter something. Why does the gospel writer use two different words, to look or to gaze intently? It goes on to say that John joins Peter in the tomb. John looks around and John believes. But this year, for the very first time in my life, I noticed something about this story. It's in the verse that follows this. John sees and believes. Peter just sees. It doesn't say that Peter believed. And then at the end of that little first episode, it says, then the disciples returned to their own homes. Now the Greek is real clear. Their own homes. It doesn't say like it does later in the chapter, they regathered in the upper room with the other disciples. I realized for the first time, I don't think Peter's with them the rest of this chapter. I think Peter, them being in Jerusalem and on this map of Israel, you can see it, would have gone all the way back up north, almost 90 miles to the region of Galilee, to near his hometown of Capernaum. So the next three encounters, Peter's absent for. Because in verse 11, Mary Magdalene, who's been with Peter and, and John, is out in the garden. She's weeping. She doesn't know where the body of Jesus is. And someone says, woman, why are you weeping? And she looks up and thinking he's the gardener in his resurrected glorious body, says, sir, if you know where they've taken my Lord, please tell me. And then Jesus speaks her name, Mary. And that's it. Mary, her eyes are open. Her spirit is open. She falls on her face. She begins to worship Jesus. I know some people like that. When they talk about faith, it is though the resurrected Christ has shown up and called them by name. You ever been with a fellow Christian that talks about their faith life and their relationship with Christ so personally you would think that Jesus lived in the duplex next door? It's like Jesus is their best friend or something. Some people are like that. And their encounter with resurrection hope is very personal. The story continues. Later in the day, Jesus moves into the upper room where the remaining disciples are left. Now, when Jesus moves into the room, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm going to send you the same way. In fact, you now are empowered with my forgiveness for sins to forgive people 
And when you, you get together, I will breathe upon you the Holy Spirit and you will be filled with peace. It's almost like they're having church. Jesus offers his nail, hand, nail prints in his hands and his side and says, see, almost like communion that he's offering his body and blood. He breathes peace upon them. He pronounces forgiveness. They're gathered together in a group. I know some people like that. They come to faith in Jesus Christ just by coming to church regularly. Somehow and singing songs, listening to a poorly delivered sermon, getting together with other Christians, drinking the coffee or Methodist holy water out in the foyer. There's just Their experience of corporate gatherings is how they understand and experience resurrection hope. But there's a disciple conspicuously missing. His name is Doubting Thomas. He's given him that name, that qualifier, for over 20 centuries. It's one week later when it says Jesus shows up. Because Thomas had gone back to the disciples in the upper room and he heard their tale of meeting Jesus and he said, I don't buy it, I'm sorry. I'd like to believe you guys, but for me, I saw him die. And unless I place my hands in his nail prints and in his side, I will not believe. Some people are like that. The cognitive ascent is just too difficult for them. They like Jesus as a moral teacher, but having to say that we really believe that he's God's son is just too difficult a mental hurdle for them. Well, Jesus doesn't let that stop him either. Because a week later, he shows up to Thomas and said, did you need to see? Here are my hands, here is my side. And Thomas falls on his face. And Jesus says to him in verse 29, Blessed are those who have not seen, but have believed. These three encounters, Mary Magdalene, the group of disciples, and Thomas, are three unique ways that Jesus becomes real in his resurrected body to them. But Peter has exited stage left. He's been up in Galilee. And in the small town of Capernaum, which is probably his hometown, he's gotten back together when chapter 21 opens. He's gotten back together with six of the other disciples, most all of them from the region of Galilee. Later, Jesus himself appeared again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. This is how it happened. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They set out on a boat, but throughout the night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't re realize it was Jesus. Jesus called to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? They answered him, no. He said, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they did. And there were so many fish that they couldn't haul in the net. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Peter heard it was the Lord, he wrapped his coat around himself for he was naked and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they weren't far from the shore, only about 100 yards when they landed, they saw a fire there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter got up and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. Yet the net hadn't torn, even with so many fish. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples could bring themselves to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. In this picture of the Sea of Galilee, this is the actual shoreline in Capernaum. 
where Jesus would have stood to call the disciples back to him. Now, when I read this story, there are several things that stick out to me. Obviously, Peter is not with the disciples down in Jerusalem, the ones who were left. He's back up at home. And he decides to go fishing at night. In the first century, even a professional fisherman like Peter would probably not have gone out at night. They had deep respect for the sea and storms which could move in to the Sea of Galilee very quickly. I kind of imagine, speculatively anyway, that he is restless. He cannot sleep. And throws up his hands and says, I'm just going to go do what I know how to do, which is fish. And the other disciples, maybe he woke them up. Maybe they were restless too. They said, we'll go with you. They go out, and I can identify with this next part. They're out there all night, don't catch a cotton-picking thing. And then the scripture says, and I want you to catch this, early in the morning. Does that sound familiar? Early in the morning, Jesus is on the shoreline and calls out, and I can almost hear his voice dripping with sarcasm, catching anything? No, thank you, stranger. We haven't caught anything. And Jesus says, try throwing your net on the other side of the boat. Now look, I've been fishing at times when I haven't caught anything. And if I'd been fishing all night long, I would have not only thrown to the other side of the boat, I would have gone through every piece of tackle. I would have been trying to catch a shark in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. I would have thrown anything out there to try to get any fish to bite. Don't you think the disciples had thrown also onto the other side of the boat? Peter is obedient. And as soon as they begin to pull that net, it is heavy. And that boat begins to tip and they can hear the creaking of that wet net. And John realizes the one who called us to be fishers of men has commanded us. It is the Lord. And Peter, who is in his boxers in the middle of the boat, throws on his coat. He jumps in the water and begins to swim to shore. And there he meets the risen Christ. Here's what I want you to catch, friends. The fourth time that Jesus has an encounter with someone, once with Mary Magdalene, two with the disciples, the fourth time when it's Peter, Peter does not develop resurrection faith until he is obedient to Jesus' command to throw on the other side of the boat. Do you hear that? Oftentimes we assume that faith precedes obedience, but in this story... It is Peter's obedience which opens his eyes to be able to understand who it is there before him. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who has been wrestling with a career change, wrestling with a career change into a helping profession because you believe that's a calling on your life, but you're afraid of the risk. Maybe there's somebody who knows of a family member or a friend who's in deep financial need and you you feel a desire to help them but it would be a sacrificial gift on your part and you're you're just holding back a little bit maybe actually assuredly somebody in this room is estranged from a loved one and God has been in convicting your heart and your spirit to swallow your pride even if it wasn't your fault to reach out to that person to try to be a reconciler maybe some family or some person God is talking to about adopting a child. Whatever it is that God's calling you to be obedient, sometimes that will lead you to open your eyes and realize that Christ is real. Because faith can often come on the other side of obedience. Now look, there are tons of people that believe the tomb is empty. 
That's no big deal. Even the people that killed Jesus believed he'd been raised from the dead. In Matthew 28, the, the religious leaders, they heard that Jesus had been raised from the dead. What do they do? They call the Roman soldiers over there and pay them off to concoct a lie that the disciples stole Jesus' body. It is not an impressive thing to believe, yeah, I think Jesus was God's son. I believe the tomb was empty. I believe God raised him from the dead. What is impressive is when we take to heart what Jesus says about nine chapters earlier in John chapter 11, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And catch this, everyone who first lives in me and then believes in me will never die. You see the sequence? That you practice obedience to the resurrected one and then the belief follows. I've shared with some friends before that our family has some connections in Andalusia, Alabama. My mother was there visiting my grandmother about two years ago and one of her high school classmates, Robert Canant, one of my mother's childhood classmates. Heard that she was in town and went over to visit my grandmother and my mother and his father had been great friends with my grandfather and so they got together to, to catch back up. Now what you need to know about Robert is Robert is about six foot four or five. He looks rather biblical. He has a long beard and long hair and he has skin that is weathered from working outside, a day laborer in the sun and the weather beaten look and usually holes in his jeans and he's a rough guy. But when he was in his mid-40s, miraculously, somehow, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, came to him, changed him, got him out of his lifestyle, which was full of addiction and abuse, and tra transformed him. And he's now the pastor of kind of a church of roughnecks in Andalusia, Alabama. At coffee with my mother and grandmother, Robert told my, my mother and grandmother the story of how he had recently taken his church on a mission trip. He had gathered together those who could lay, pour concrete and put up drywall and paint and they went down to Haiti and they began to work on a school, a Christian school. They were there working and laying cinder block. And one afternoon, someone who was not a part of their group showed up and said, is there a minister here? We heard that there was a Christian group here on a mission trip. And Robert raised his hand and said, I'm a minister. And they said, would you be willing to come to the health clinic down the road? There's a medical mission team there from another church, another state. And someone has asked for a minister. Would you be willing to come? So Robert laid down his tools, took off his work apron and he went to the clinic. He met the doctor in the waiting room and the doctor introduced himself, a fellow American, and said, the reason we've called you is we have in the next room a grandmother, a Haitian grandmother. She's been waiting for three days in line to get into this clinic. She has her grandson with him and he is deeply ill. He's about seven years old, she says, but he appears as though he's three or four and his body is malnourished, his body is emaciated, and we've given him antibiotics because he has some infections and we've given him some steroids, but I had to be honest with her and tell her I don't believe that her grandson is going to make it. And when I did that, she pleaded for a minister. She said she had been waiting for three days in line, sleeping in the ditch across the street from the clinic. Would a minister come and pray for her grandson? Robert thanked the doctor and they moved into the room and there she was. She held the limp body of her grandson. And Robert laid a hand on his shoulder and a hand on the grandmother's shoulder and he began to pray and as he's telling this story to my mother and grandmother, he recounts that, you know, I really was praying that the love of God would surround them and then that unexplainable peace would overwhelm them. But then the grandmother started to pray in her own language. And I have no idea what she said, but I think I knew exactly what she was saying because she was pleading so earnestly that God would save her grandson. 
I guess I was just emboldened by that. And I said, God, if it be your will, we believe if you can create the universe, if you can raise Jesus from the dead, you could choose to heal this child. So would you, in a way, through the medicine, through the health care, but in the miraculous way that only would you heal this child? He finally said, Amen. When the doctor walked out with him, and Robert said, I'd like to have your contact information, and here's mine, and would you please let me know what happens with this child? Robert went back to his work and in a few days went home. About a week later, he received a phone call. The doctor had returned back home, and he said, Reverend Kenan, I wanted you to know that after you left, even just a number of hours later, the child began to have color return to their cheeks. By the next day, he was beginning to smile and respond. By the third day, he was sitting up. And by the time I left, five or six days later, he was even starting to interact and play with the other children. I think that child is going to recover. And I just wanted you to know. Robert said, I was sitting at the kitchen table this morning with my wife. And I told her that I'd read these stories in the Gospels about how Jesus would do these miraculous things. I'd never witnessed any of them. And I sat there, I told her, I said, you know, I am so humbled and proud that God could use somebody like me to help that child be healed. And he said, as I took a sip of my coffee, I felt like God Almighty slapped me right across the face. And said, Robert, I didn't heal that boy because you prayed for him. I healed him because of the faith of his grandmother. The fourth way that Jesus appears is when we are obedient enough to withstand a night in a ditch, to do something risky and costly. And there we find in the morning, early in the morning, the risen Christ becomes real. Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. 